Welcome to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert Hazelton, and I'll be your host. I've got a whole lot of stuff to talk about today, including some video games and some more Doctor Who stuff, so I'm going to dive right in because this might be a long show. The first thing I want to talk about today is the game Overwatch. Uh, that might seem like an old topic since it came out back in 2016, but they made a recent change that really did attract my attention, and I gave it a shot, and uh, I have some opinions about it. So that new change is the role queue. So those unfamiliar with Overwatch, it's a team-based shooter where each side has a number of heroes that uh, adopt roles like tank, damage, and support, and they attempt to overcome objectives. Now, those objectives tend to be things like take a point and hold it, and if you can hold it a certain period of time, then you win the round, or... Uh, take a vehicle and then as soon as you've claimed it escort it to a location and once it gets there you win that sort of thing one of the challenges that people had when playing overwatch is that there would be bad team composition in other words there wouldn't be enough tanks there wouldn't be enough damage whatever the case may be in order to fix that overwatch came up with a solution where you elect to play a specific role when you queue up for a quick play or competitive game so you can actually pick all three, support, DPS, or tank. But what it does is prioritizes what is missing from the team, and then it assigns you to it. So, for example, if there's not enough support characters, then you would be relegated to only picking support characters when the character select screen came up. Now, this sounds like a really good idea on paper, but in practice, it has some problems. First off you've got to actually be good at more than one or two characters. For my part, I'm really good at the character D.Va, but that is only one tank, and so if I choose the tank role, get into a game, and someone else has already picked her, I'm going to gimp the team dramatically because I didn't get good at a different tank besides her. And ultimately, the reason that I chose to do it that way was because back when the game first came out, you could pick any character you wanted, I chose to be good at three different sort of DPS characters, one support character, and then one tank. The idea there being that I can complement the team based on what other people pick. I didn't really have the dedication or the time to become a, a player who played all characters. Now, granted, there are folks out there who pull that off beautifully. One of our friends we played with all the time did it, but that just wasn't me. I wanted to focus and really get good at specific specific characters now if we're expected to be able to play all of them effectively that's that's unrealistic in my opinion normal folks who actually have jobs who go out and work they're not going to have the time to dedicate to the 25 plus heroes that are available in overwatch so i think this role uh, requirement this role queue is a good idea for the competitive crowd because they really do need to have a solid team comp. They can't go at it with a whole bunch of DPS. They just won't win. But in the quick play model, it should really be more like the original game. And I think that that is going to cause some problems for the game in the future. I just don't see people enjoying it nearly as much if they have to, to fight to pick the one character they're good at or end up looking at the tanks and going, oh, goodness, you know, two people have already picked and uh, I, I can't play my character, so I'm just going to ruin the experience for other people. And if you leave, you're also causing problems for the team. 
And all that said, I did go to the forums and look into this, and I do see a lot of complaints about it. There's some people praising it too, but for the most part, I found more complaints than uh, positivity. So I don't know. It's 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 an interesting way to address a problem, and that problem being that people don't like team comps being poor, which that makes sense. I mean, if you want to win, your team does have to comprise the the right roles in order to achieve the objectives. But at the same time, if it's going to cut into the fun, it really does just become a knee-jerk reaction, which Blizzard is fantastic at. They are really quick to make a decision that, that, that just comes sort of out of, oh, we got to address all of these people complaining right now in the fastest way possible. And it's almost like they don't get enough feedback before they make those those changes. Now, whether or not they got some quality feedback about the roll queue, I don't know. But just looking at it and messing around with it, I can say that at this point, I wouldn't even go back to Overwatch. In the entire time that it's been out, I've had it installed. I did uninstall it after a couple of games with that roll queue. It just does not work for me. I'd love to hear from anybody out there still playing Overwatch and see what your opinion is of the roll queue. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Would you like to see it implemented in another way? Uh, Leave me a message, drop me an email, comment on the podcast, and I'd be happy to revisit this topic and address those concerns or otherwise talk about it. The next thing I want to talk about is a video game called Greedfall. It's an RPG by the French company Spiders. They're known for Of Orcs and Men, Mars Warlogs, The Technomancer, and a few other titles. This new one is pretty ambitious. It's an open world, very similar to Mass Effect role-playing game, where you do pick your character. You make uh, either a male or female with a specific class. There's three to choose from. They have skill trees and that sort of thing. And depending on how you build your character dictates how you meet and overcome obstacles. So if you choose to be a highly charismatic character, then your character might be able to talk their way into situations that a more skillful, say, agile character could not because they focused on picking locks or that sort of thing. Uh, If you chose to craft, there are ways to get around some of the obstacles that way as well. So it's actually pretty fun in that regard. You do have a lot of option. You feel like you're impacting the world. Now, the reason I picked up Greedfall is because it fit every niche that I need for a game. I was able to make my own character. My character's uh, interactions in the world affect how things turn out. So I can actually impact the story. And there are different endings based on the things that I do. And it's very pretty on top of all that. It really does have a great feel. Uh, The combat itself is very fast-paced, but you can slow it down by pausing the game if you need to. All around, I really do love Greedfall. I think it's a fantastic game, and I think it's worth the $49.99. Yeah, that's how much it is on PS4, Xbox, and on the PC. Now, it's not to say there aren't a few problems. One of the big ones being the uh, lip-syncing is pretty dreadful. But I did see some complaints about voice acting, and I have to say, those were bogus. The voice acting is fabulous in this game, and it should not deter you from picking it up. So, all around, if you're looking for the Mass Effect experience, if you want a game where your character is really going to be involved in the world and have a lot of factions and interesting stuff to do, 
this game has over 80 quests to perform throughout the big world, and they do say it's bigger than Skyrim. I do highly recommend you pick up Greedfall right away. This is the kind of game that should be made for the modern-day single-player experience. And while a recent uh, episode I talked about how I hadn't really gotten into single-player games, this one dragged me right back in, and I found the one that I needed. I just hadn't discovered it yet. So anyway, Greedfall, grab it. It's worth it. Recently, I was doing some surfing on Amazon, and I happened upon the Doctor Who The Complete David Tennant Collection. And it was a very reasonable price, so it got me leery about just how complete it might actually be. Uh, They were selling it for $33, and it didn't really say specifically what was in it. And so I tried to do some research, but I couldn't find anything that explicitly stated what was in this box set. I decided, you know, it's Amazon. If for some reason I don't like what I get, I'll just return it. So I pre-ordered it. It actually came the day that the product was released, which was really impressive. So what it ended up including was Series 2 and 3, Series 4, all the specials, the animated specials, The Wedding of Sarah Jane Smith, and the interview with David Tennant that I got to see when I went to see The End of Time in the theater. It also has uh, some Doctor Who Confidential, uh, the video diaries, commentaries, deleted scenes, outtakes, children in need special, and a whole bunch more. So when they said complete in this particular situation, they really meant it. This genuinely is the complete collection. And for $33, it is an absolute steal. One that I recommend hands down. Now, it was set to cost a lot more than $33. I think I saw $79 to begin with. So this is a fantastic price. The last time I checked, it was the same price on Amazon. So if you are a big fan of Doctor Who, if you love David Tennant as the Doctor, then you you just need to pick this up. It's Blu-ray. It looks fabulous. We've already watched some of it. And I have to say, I'm really, really, really happy with this purchase. Definitely a must for anyone who loves Doctor Who. Especially considering that when you buy, say, a Tom Baker season, it is the same price as just one season. So they aren't even really doing a complete collection, which which I can understand. There's probably a lot more footage in those than there is in the, what I'm holding here. But uh, regardless, this is definitely something you should pick up right away. Highly endorse it. It will be a link in the uh, podcast description today. Speaking of Doctor Who, we are still working our way through the Matt Smith episodes of the series, and I have been doing a lot of deep diving into the past Doctor Who stuff, watching Tom Baker, John Pertwee, that kind of thing. So I'm sort of catching up on the history of Doctor Who while also watching the more modern stuff. So last night, we managed to get through a very large reveal, and I'm going to tell you right now, everything from this point on is pretty big spoilers. Of course, this has been out for so long now, I'm sure that anybody who really cares has already seen it. Obviously, I'm late to the game. I've already talked about that before. But I have a whole lot of thoughts about a reveal involving River Song. So, if you don't want spoilers and you're still going to watch this stuff, you probably just want to turn off the podcast now. If, on the other hand, you don't care and you just want to hear how I felt about it, then listen on. So, 
Anyway, spoilers from this point out. When River Song was first introduced with the David Tennant episode with the creepy shadows that were uh, full of monsters that, that basically ate people, I didn't really like her that much. I knew that she was going to be very important later in the series, and it made me nervous because I just didn't like how the character was presented. As you go through the series and you get more of her, my fears became intensified and just so much smugness to her character. It really annoyed me. I just, I feel like she was written really badly. And the actress herself, Alex Kingston, just doesn't, she doesn't have the natural ability to turn that level of arrogant smugness into something lovable for me. I put my mind to it and I was thinking of other actors who have portrayed characters who have some of those traits, but we still really enjoy them. And I came up with a few things that make me understand why I don't like River as much. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise has made a career of being an arrogant ass that we still like for some reason, even though the actor himself has done a lot of crazy stuff. Some of his characters are very well Light. I mean, Ethan Hunt has managed to spawn a whole franchise, and they've got two more movies coming out about that. He really played up Jack Reacher's insane arrogance and just total self-confidence, and you still enjoy watching him do it. Uh, Chris Pratt plays that character pretty well. Chris Pine is exceptional at it. We've seen it with his Captain Kirk. We've seen it in the uh, This Means War and various other films as well. And other people, Kurt Russell in Escape from New York, Harrison Ford as Han Solo or as uh, Indiana Jones, um, John Barrowman as Captain Jack Harkness, Nathan Fillion in anything he does, pretty much. So all of those actors play those super arrogant, smug sort of people, and they pull it off. And I think one of the reasons is that they make mistakes and yet come out ahead regardless. Whereas River herself does not really make mistakes. She is always dead on. Uh, what mistakes she does make, everybody happens to make at the same time. So it doesn't really count. And she's never really held accountable for her shenanigans. She gets away with everything. So... A couple of female actresses that, that pull this off as well. Kate Beckinsale did a fantastic job in Underworld. Her character is very standoffish and arrogant, and she's still lovable. Angelina Jolie in the Tomb Raider movies was really good at it. You've got Charlize Theron. You've got Elizabeth Grayson, who was from the Highlander the Raven. There's just there's a lot of folks who have managed to play fairly unlikable personality traits, and yet you still really enjoy their performance. And I don't feel that Alex Kingston pulled that off with River Song. One thing that I really don't like about Moffat's writing is that it feels at times like a 15-year-old boy has got the keys to the franchise. His doctor is really arrogant. Uh, he fortunately is being portrayed by someone who's really charming and manages to make that okay most of the time. But even in the episode Almost Humans, I found out that the writer had to not allow the doctor to have just happened upon the flesh. It had to be a whole big thing. He had to 
um, the doctor had to know about it in advance and, and be researching it so that he didn't come off as as a total coincidence, which many of his stories are coincidental. In fact, the Neil Gaiman episode we watched where the TARDIS has the ability to talk, she even mentions that she brings him where he needs to be several times. So I think it would have been okay if that could have been a one-off episode. River herself really does represent a male fantasy. She's smug because she knows everything, but the very fact that the show has been on for generations defies the logic of her character. Her diary, as an example, it's it's nonsense. In the Tom Baker episode, uh, Genesis of the Daleks, he makes it really clear because there's the moment when he is about to destroy an entire batch of, of Daleks, basically baby Daleks that have been grown and they're being prepared to inhabit the the encasement and he talks about all of the things he's about to change if i get rid of the daleks now yes all of this horrible stuff won't happen but all of the cool stuff where people came together and developed a better culture all of that's going to go away so if he had to worry about that and he knew it was going to happen and it it basically does anyway because by the end the daleks do get set back dramatically then all of the times that River is like, no, 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 I can't do anything because of the book, her her spoilers book, it, it it's nullified. We already know that as people who watch Doctor Who. We know that you can change quite a bit about time. Yes, there's fixed points, but since we haven't mentioned explicitly that the things she chooses not to get involved in are fixed points, we have to assume she's just being uh, stubborn. She knows the future, and so she's doomed to make it happen. And that's a real difficult position to be in when we have a big show about time travel. So as an example, when Rory shows up and says, hey, I really need you to come along now. The doctor needs your help. She shouldn't have been like, well, you know, I actually know what's going to happen. So I can't be there until X point in this timeline. She should have said, well, I know how it went once. Let's see what happens this time. Or if we want to cover our tracks... She should have said, hey, I have gone with you before, and it doesn't work out right, so I'm going to have to stay. We've already gone down this road. The last time was a disaster. This time, we're going to do it the way that works out. Sort of think Avengers Endgame when Doctor Strange mentions, I've seen all the ways that this plays out, and only one of them comes out with us winning. If she would have gone sort of on that route and given a little bit more exposition to explain why exactly she wasn't going to go and help, that would have made it a lot easier for us to accept as viewers because then we would understand that not only does she know what's going on, but that the writers are still acknowledging their very lush history that they have created for the last 60 years. So cutting back to the big reveal... There's the moment where River talks to the Doctor and he gets kind of giddy and takes off on them. He leaves in the TARDIS and Amy picks up a gun and points it at River. I thought, oh my goodness, please just just do it. Just punish her for all the antics, all of the smugness, all of the games she keeps playing. And then they did the reveal and they said who she is. And all I could think of was, are you kidding me? Really? We're, that's where we're going? I guess. Okay. And it just, it fell flat for me, which sucks because I think that was supposed to be huge. I think it was supposed to be a massive, awesome thing for us as viewers 
And for me, I was just like, oh, all right then. And speaking of that episode in general, there's a lot of stuff about it that just isn't as epic as Moffat wanted it to be. For example, I enjoyed the companions he went and found. The uh, two sword-wielding Victorian folks were absolutely amazing. His blue guy was cool. His centauran was neat. But they aren't a substitute for the children of time because we didn't really have enough time with any of those characters to care about them, to be excited about this reunion. So the whole episode is just sort of like, oh, okay, neat. I mean, it's cool to see katanas and people getting lashed with tongues and that kind of thing and the headless monks. But once again, the big problem with the more modern Doctor Who is that they're not serialized in three to five episode arcs. They're just these quick 45 minutes, sometimes two-parters. And while they may link up, they just don't spend enough time to develop some of these story arcs. So I think that had we got to know those new companions, the people that he called in favors with throughout time, rather than going to the people he knew were super reliable, like Captain Harkness or Martha or any of them, I think that we would have felt a lot more during that scene. I think that we would have been a lot more excited. And when they dropped the big reveal with River, since we were already emotional at seeing all of our friends come back that they could have been visiting more often in the previous uh, episodes, then we would have been able to say, oh, that's an awesome reveal. But since most of the episode was just kind of meh, unfortunately their big reveal was also meh. Anyway, there it is. I'm not a big fan of River Song. I really think I could have been, I should have been, and with better writing and a different actress, I probably would have. But as it is, I'm going to continue to watch and see if my opinion changes. And if it does, I will be right back on here and I will recant everything I've said or at least counter it and explain why my opinion has changed. But right now, I really don't see that happening. This will be a quick one. I just want to talk about Last Blood, the new Rambo movie. I haven't seen it yet, but I do get three movies a week with my subscription service, so I do intend to. I just I find it interesting how it is being attacked by the reviewers this time, specifically. Uh, David Morell, the original writer of Rambo, came out and said that he is embarrassed to have his name associated with the latest movie. And that's pretty interesting, considering that the Rambo movies haven't fared very well with critics. The original movie, First Blood, has an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. But after that, Rambo First Blood Part 2 has a 36%. Then Rambo 3 has a 39%. The fourth Rambo movie, just called Rambo, has a 37%. And the latest one has a 27%. So... I guess if we were aiming for the 30s, like the rest of the movies, then yeah, I suppose that the new movie is dramatically worse, but none of them have really been movies for the critics. I've seen some people say that it got hammered because it's hyper-violent, but that doesn't hold water because Ready or Not got fantastic reviews. I've seen people talk about how it's not very politically correct because it paints folks from Mexico in a less-than-favorable light. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And it really strikes me that people seem to have forgotten that when Sylvester Stallone makes an action movie, 
it generally is just about blowing people up. I mean, sometimes there's a slight message there, but for the most part, it's about the action. And from what I've also read about this is that it would have made a fantastic Taken 4. And it's just Rambo's version of it. It didn't even need to be a Rambo movie I've seen. But that's pretty much true of every action movie. I mean, let's talk about Die Hard for a second. Uh, Several of the Die Hard movies were just different books that they shoehorned John McClane into. So I'm not sure why Last Blood is getting this kind of attention or why David felt like it was necessary to come out and give it a hard time. But uh, there it is. I'm sure that it will do fine at the box office. Uh, If this is truly the final Rambo movie, uh, it's probably not the best note to end on. From what I understand, it ends in a very strange way. So, I don't know. Um, I will absolutely share my opinion when I've seen the movie and talk about it then. But for right now, it looks like it's going to be no different than the previous Rambo movie, which was just him going off and shooting people in really nasty, nasty ways. So anyway, I think it's interesting how our society in general attacks one set of very violent cinema, but another is is pretty much just okay. And maybe it's because of who's in it, and maybe it's because of the subject matter itself, or that people were looking for something to attack. But all around, I didn't expect it to get great reviews, and... I'm pretty much expecting to go in and watch an action movie, so I probably am not going to be disappointed. Unfortunately, a lot of people seem to have been. Uh, (laughs) I would have cautioned them to check their expectations long before even setting foot outside their front door to go see the movie, let alone getting to the theaters. We've seen a lot of these franchises get stale and just fall apart, so I'm not sure why anyone thought Rambo was going to just excel if they did. And I I gotta be honest, I'm not even sure why they made another one. I mean, they could have just done another Expendables. Maybe maybe it's too hard to get all those folks together in the same room. But uh, all around, I don't know. I think that Rambo's probably getting maligned for no real good reason. All those 80s action movies got the same kind of thing. And speaking about that, I kind of wanted to talk about reboots and remakes and how they sort of... How they impact our psychology. I I can't think of another way to explain what I've seen when it comes to people's reactions to these uh, happening. Specifically, The Princess Bride came out. They're talking about doing a remake for that. And I'm sure that you've seen all the tweets from the different celebrities, the people who are in the movie, their buddies. Russell Crowe came out and said something. And I get it. I get it. You don't want a remake of The Princess Bride. Let's talk about what that really means and ask a really important question. What does it matter if someone remakes a movie we love? What does that do to the original? How is it tainting the original in our minds? So if they remade The Princess Bride and they just did an awful job, they got all the wrong people It misfired in a major way. How would that impact our enjoyment of the first movie? I would argue that in many ways, it would enhance our enjoyment of the first movie because we'd be like, oh, thank God we still have this version. It's so much better than that garbage. And through comparison, the original becomes better. It doesn't become tainted. It isn't like all of a sudden the original is bad. 
Now, I can tell you a way that The Princess Bride could potentially be ruined by another movie, and that would be if they tried to make a sequel and brought back all the cast. If that misfired, it has the potential to ruin the original in our minds. Because, for example, I didn't like the second two Matrix movies, and it became hard to differentiate the first movie from the next two because of the way they did the continuity. And so, in a lot of ways, the sequels ruined the first one for me. I watched the first one, and I think, well, yeah, but it's not really a happy ending, per se. Uh, There's two more movies that are confusing and ridiculous. And the same goes with Back to the Future. I like watching just Back to the Future, but knowing that in the second movie, Marty's life is in shambles. And that makes it hard to appreciate the first movie, because now what we thought was a happy ending with a, a little quirk has become something that nullifies much of what we what we enjoyed the first time. Especially that they reshot that final scene with the, uh, Doc Brown coming in and saying, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with you, uh, but it's your kids. Uh, we need to look into them. And then his hesitation in the reshoot is what I don't like because Marty and his wife should have gone on and been great. But as we see, they get to the point where he's pretty much just his dad from prior to all the changes in time. So sequels can ruin a movie, but remakes don't have that continuity. They are just films that are either inspired by the original, as is the case of the new Point Break, has some of the same plot elements, but it deviates considerably. Uh, Or it is a scene-for-scene remake like Psycho with uh, Vince Vaughn, which, by the way, I didn't have a problem with, but a lot of people did. And ultimately, that remake of Psycho didn't ruin the original Anthony Perkins version. It's still fantastic. It's super fun to watch. I often forgot about the Vince Vaughn version. So I don't think that we should care if they remake. It's their money. They want to do it because they think it has name recognition, that it might put some butts in seats, and that's fine. Hollywood has been doing remakes for a very, very long time. There are a lot of versions of The Painted Veil. There are several versions of The Maltese Falcon. It's it's not about creativity being dead in the modern day it's that hollywood and people who have a lot of money just want to play it safe and for some reason in their minds they think remakes and reboots are a safe bet now let me just say that's interesting that they continue to feel that way because people are so vocal on the internet about not wanting them the biggest problem is that we prove them right by going to see these, whether it be through morbid curiosity or privately we actually do think it's a good idea and we want to see it or whatever the case may be. We don't vote with our dollars by staying away from remakes all the time. So it makes it look like another safe bet every time someone brings it up, whether it be we're going to remake Escape from New York or we're going to do Big Trouble in Little China you know, some more classic cult movies that should probably be left alone in many people's minds are ripe for the picking because someone wants to make some money and they think that's the way to do it. But I think there's two things to keep in mind. One, don't go see a remake if you genuinely think that the remakes should not be made because you are fueling that engine. And two, remakes do not taint the original that they come from. They merely act 
as another way to see it. Much like plays from back in the day, plays are always performed by different people, sometimes in different settings, all kinds of stuff like that. They're like cover songs that might be a different interpretation. You can still enjoy the original. None of those things destroy the integrity of the original. The only thing that can do that is you. You give that the power to do it. And as long as you can back away and be like, you know what, I'm just not even going to see it and I don't care, then you can continue to enjoy the original material without any kind of problem. And I wish that more people would embrace that because what ends up happening is they just take to the Internet and indulge outrage culture and freak out. and, And it's not necessary. I don't even think that complaining is necessary. Maybe a sigh of, wow, another remake, I guess, but just move on. There's so many other things to watch and do. And indie movies are on the rise. They're huge now. iTunes has a whole section of pad your indie collection for $4.99. And that's really the direction of everything. Everything creative is coming from the indie market, whether it be video games, movies, whatever. So... If you want original, fund those guys. Give them your attention. Ignore these big-named Hollywood studios that are just manufacturing nonsense that you don't want. And don't even don't help their hype machine by bringing it up either. Because in complaining, we are providing free advertisement for the film. And we're bolstering the news about it. We're getting a hype train created. And in some cases, I am willing to bet that they're using that kind of data to decide whether or not to go through with the project. So, anyway, that is my rant about those kinds of remakes, reboots, that sort of thing. As always, I would love to hear your opinion. I'd like to hear how you feel about remakes and whether or not you think they could ruin the original. And if you think that, I'd like to know why and where, you, where you're coming from there. Because... Uh, As with most things, I mean, I'm very strongly opinionated, but um, I'm not I'm not blind to other ideas. So if you've got a great one, I'm I'm capable of changing my mind. I don't think I would on this one because I am pretty darn good at differentiating one piece of uh, cinema or entertainment from another. And I can walk away from something pretty darn quick. I walked out on many, many movies in my time that I was not willing to give the full two-hour experience to when I knew I was not enjoying it. So I can do that with remakes, and I highly encourage all of you to as well. All right, thank you very much for listening to the show. I appreciate you stopping by. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, be sure to check out our website and keep track of the schedule. You can find us at www.societycasefiles.com or www. RobertHazelton.com. Don't forget to follow or support the project at ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles. Thanks very much. Look forward to seeing you next week.